Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, please take my words and speak through them. Take our ears and hear through them. At the start of this new year, please take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if maybe you watched Raymond Briggs' snowman animation over Christmas. We watched the snowman glide gracefully through the air It gives us that kind of warm, tingly Christmas feel-good factor. But actually, that's not what the author intended. According to an interview with Raymond Briggs, the writer, he said, I create what seems natural and inevitable. The snowman melts. My parents died. Animals die. Flowers die. Everything does. I wonder what Matthew would say about our nativity plays. Would he say, you've missed the deep meaning of the story I wrote? Because he didn't write his account simply for children. He didn't write it just to give us that warmer feeling inside. He wrote it to confront us with Jesus Matthew's continuing the theme he begins in the opening verses of his gospel. He's showing Jesus as the one the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to. But for us, I wonder if our whole interpretation of the story is full of misunderstandings. Before Christmas, as you can see from that rather unflattering picture on the screen, I spent quite a lot of time taking children on a Christmas journey round Norwich Cathedral. The picture shows me dressed as a humble shepherd, telling children of the incredible night when an angel appeared to me and told me that the Christ had been born. And then I talked to the children about the next visitors to the baby Jesus. We'd dress three children as kings and we'd follow a star to a stable. But look carefully at verse 1 of our passage. Matthew doesn't say they were kings. He calls them magi, men who were interested in dreams, astrology and magic. He doesn't tell us. There were three of them. People have assumed that from the fact that there were three gifts. And what about those nativity scenes that picture shepherds and wise men together in a stable? Luke mentions a manger, but he doesn't speak of a stable. And as we realize, as we read Matthew's account, we realize times passed since Jesus' birth. Herod's attempt to kill all the baby boys under the age of two gives us some idea of the time that may have elapsed between Jesus' birth and the visit of the Magi. So please make sure your Bibles are still open at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, on page 966. And we'll see if we can uncover the message of this passage Because Matthew wants us to see that all of history, all prophecy, all promise 
points to Jesus. Matthew presents us with two kings, Herod and Jesus. And I'd like to place them side by side to help us see Jesus is a king unlike any other. And because of that, how we respond to him is all important. And Matthew shows us three possible responses to Jesus. And I'd like us to look at those two and to ask ourselves at the start of this new year, how will I respond to Jesus? Matthew introduces us to an earthly king and a promised king. He tells us in verse 1 of our passage that this happened during the time of King Herod. Herod wasn't a Jew. He was an Edomite who overthrew his enemies to seize the throne. And he constantly feared that others might try and take control. He was an incredibly ruthless and ambitious man. He loved power. He killed his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, even his favourite wife, Mariam, because he thought they were plotting against him. He killed three of his own sons, who he suspected of trying to seize the throne. But in contrast... Matthew slowly builds up a picture of Jesus, not as one desperately trying to seize power and hold on to it, but as the one promised throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Matthew sets the scene for us in the opening verse. Bethlehem in Judea is David's city. Jesus is the promised king in the line of David. Verse 2 tells us the Magi are looking for the one born king of the Jews. Notice it doesn't say the one born to be king of the Jews, but the one born king of the Jews. Jesus is a king from the very moment of his birth. And the reference to the star points those with a knowledge of the Old Testament to the book of Numbers, where the prophet Balaam prophesies that a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. They're verses that promise that one day God will send a deliverer to rescue his people. And if you look at your Bibles, you'll see that verse 6 is a much clearer reference to prophecy. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah said that God's promised ruler would be born in Bethlehem. Matthew has got Micah's words in mind as he writes, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He's using Micah's words to say, look, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's the one God promised long ago. And the last bit of Matthew's quotation combines Micah's prophecy with words from 2 Samuel chapter 5. 
In that chapter, we find the people of Israel gathering together and remembering God's promise that King David will be their shepherd. Jesus is born in David's city. Like David, he'll rule over the people of God as a caring shepherd. And so too, just as the Queen of Sheba came from foreign lands to bring precious gifts to a son of David, to Solomon, so also these Gentile travellers give gifts to King Jesus. It's a theme that's there in Psalm 72. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. It's a psalm that points to the promised Messiah. He won't just be a king of the Jews. He'll be a king who's worshipped by men and women of every nation. And it's a vision that's given to us too by the prophet Isaiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. This account isn't simply something to be reenacted by children at Christmas. It's a story with the deepest of meanings. It shows all of the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, every promise of God pointing to Jesus. Have you grasped who Jesus is? Is your vision of him too small? But it's as we look at the end of their lives that we see the full extent of the contrast between Jesus and Herod. There we see a self-seeking king and a self-giving king. Herod was a self-centered man. He wanted status. So much so that it's even alleged that at the time of his death, he planned to have all the Jewish nobility put to death so that there would be genuine mourning. It's an extreme reaction, I know. But actually, we only have to look at some of the recent election debates to see that all leaders have some elements of self-centeredness. Jesus is the only man ever to have lived who gave his life totally and completely for others. The Magi described Jesus as king of the Jews. We don't find those words on the lips of a Gentile again until Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is approaching his crucifixion. This time, instead of a king's crown, Jesus wears a crown of thorns. Instead of being worshipped, he's mocked. The king of kings stands silently while those he came to save sneer the words, Hail the king of the Jews. They spit on him. They strike him again and again. What a contrast. What incredible self-giving. 
I was struck recently by words spoken by the Archbishop designate, or the Archbishop of York designate, Stephen Cottrell. We may rightly question some of his views, but his account of his response to Jesus' crucifixion is moving and challenging. He describes how he found himself unable to stop crying after watching the crucifixion scene in Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I couldn't pull myself together then, and I've been unable to pull myself together ever since. That story has changed my life, and the vision it offers is so compelling and so beautiful that I've given my life to it. Which leaves a question. How do we respond in the face of Jesus' self-sacrifice? Does the cross move you profoundly? Has it led you to heartfelt repentance? In our passage today, as we look at Herod, the religious leaders, and the Magi, we see three possible responses to Jesus. Herod stands in complete opposition to Jesus. He wants no other king except himself. He wants himself at the center. In verse 8, he claims to want to worship the child. But if we look at verse 16 we find that he kills all the baby boys in Bethlehem under two years old. His intention is to get rid of Jesus. We might read that account and think, hold on, I'm not a king. I'm not ruthless. How can this apply to me? But for all of us, it begs the question, Who's at the centre of your life? You or Jesus? Maybe you keep putting off turning to Jesus because you want to be king of your life. You like being in control. If that's you, then look again at who Jesus is. Who would you rather trust your life to? Your own earthly wisdom? Or the wisdom of Jesus, God's promised king, is the one who will shepherd you gently. The one who loves you so much that he put aside his kingship, came to earth as a helpless baby, and gave his life for you. In verse 4, we meet the chief priests and teachers of the law. They know exactly where the Messiah will be born. They know their scriptures. They tell the wise men where to go. But do they go themselves? They stay put because they're apathetic. They have all the knowledge they need to find Jesus, but they ignore it. The gift of Jesus lies before them, untouched. We too have that gift of Jesus. Imagine for a moment a Christmas present from the person who knows you best, the person who knows exactly what you need. You wouldn't leave it sitting there tantalizingly unwrapped. You'd open it eagerly. 
but the one who knows you most intimately and loves you most deeply is God himself. In Jesus, he's given you a Christmas present that meets your deepest need. But I wonder, have you, like those religious leaders, simply left that gift untouched? Maybe you've explored the Christian faith. You know how to find Jesus. You know you need to come to him and admit your need for forgiveness. If you simply reach out, the gift's there. But you do nothing. Inertia meant those chief priests and teachers of the law missed out on a life-changing experience. Don't miss out because of apathy. You could have a relationship with the King of Kings. But for all of us, the Magi give us an amazing picture. They show us what it means to respond to Jesus with all that we are and all that we have. At the start of this new year, let's fix our eyes on their example. We don't know exactly where the Magi came from. Some have suggested Babylon, others Persia, others Arabia. Neither do we know what the phenomenon was that they saw. Experts have made various suggestions, and I'm not an astronomer, so I'm not going to attempt to suggest which might be most likely. But I do know that the God I believe in created the stars and is more than capable of influencing them. Whatever those men saw, it was enough for them to set out on an arduous journey of several hundred miles. There were no well-made roads, no fast methods of travel, no easy route. They devoted all their time and energy to their search for Jesus. We can't go on a physical journey to meet Jesus. But we can put Jesus first. We can devote ourselves to knowing him better. And like the Magi, we can make that a priority that supersedes all others. Why not start the new year by setting time aside each day for Bible reading and prayer? Get hold of a Bible reading guide or download an app. But make it a priority that allows nothing else to get in the way. Verse 10 tells us the result of the Magi's search for Jesus is great joy. Finding Jesus, delighting in him and knowing his salvation is the source of what the Apostle Peter calls glorious and inexpressible joy. These important men come to a simple house, a poor family, and a child. But they bow down in worship. Maybe for them it was no more than paying homage. And yet in that act we see something so much more profound. They bowed their knee to the King of Kings, 
and they offered him the best that they could give. Gold, frankincense and myrrh are costly gifts. This isn't half-hearted giving of something that's second best. That word worship comes from the old English word worship. It means ascribing worth to someone. It's not a word that simply describes what we do on a Sunday. It's a word that encompasses our whole lives. It's about our response to Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. It's about deepening our relationship with him. It's about living for him day to day. Maybe the start of the new year is a good time to review our diaries. If we examine our calendar, does the way we spend our time reflect the worth we place on Jesus? Is there a way you could be giving more of yourself to him? Perhaps by responding to Richard's earlier message in the news about ways in which you could serve the church. Maybe serving others. Maybe you simply need to ask him to rekindle your love for him. Maybe the start of the new year is a good time to pray for and to strive for a deeper knowledge of the Lord Jesus. As we read this story, we see men who show us wholehearted searching for Jesus and adoring worship that are utterly inspiring and amazing. We don't have a star to guide us, but in the pages of Scripture, we can see what they could not know. We see the whole story of Jesus. We see the promised child, but we also see the cross where Jesus poured out his life for you and for me. Like those magi, let's bow down in worship and give without reservation to the one who gave everything for us. In a moment, later in our service, we are going to share communion together. We're going to remember God's gracious promises to us, sealed with the precious blood of Jesus. And I invite you, at the start of this new year, like those wise men, to give yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus. I'm going to give you a moment just to read through those words on the screen. And if you feel able to, we'll join together in saying them as a prayer. We say together, Eternal God, in your faithful and enduring love, 
you call us to share in your gracious covenant in Jesus Christ. In obedience, we hear and accept your commands. In love, we seek to do your perfect will. With joy, we offer ourselves anew to you. We are no longer our own, but yours. <laughs> 